You have scored 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 11, Retro. Hey, this is Remy. Our title card this week is actually our very first segment, jumping right into it. It's a new segment called Freelancer, where I will present you with an exclusive Mind and Mayhem spoiler, as provided by the big boy. The card is Nostalgiologists, which is a 4-2 Haas-Bioroid agenda, research subtype, when you score this agenda, place two agenda counters on it. Hosted agenda counter, add a transaction or advertisement from archives to HQ. The flavor text says, Retro. Adjective. When buying it once doesn't cut it. And that's from the Anarchs Dictionary volume, Who's Counting? The art shows... Somebody sitting at a computer with four screens, presumably doing some kind of research. So it's a nice ability to be able to pull a transaction or an advertisement that you've already used or has been trashed, put it right back in your hand. Well, how many cards can this pull back? Well, two, because, you know, two agenda counters. But how many different cards are there in the full pool here that can this can be used for? Well, Thus far, there are 15 transactions. Three of them are assets, security subcontract, marked accounts, and private contracts. Those last two coming up in the next uh, 2.1 pack, Cyber Exodus. And there are 12 operations. Beanstalk royalties, hedge fund, commercialization, also coming in Cyber Exodus. The HB card, green level clearance, blue level clearance, and successful demonstration. Also, restructure, medical research fundraiser, diversified portfolio, paywall implementation, back channels, and IPO. And so far in the reboot card pool, there are eight advertisements, one of them an upgrade, product placement, two that are ICE, special offer, and pop-up window. A pop-up window also coming in Cyber Exodus, the third pack of the Genesis cycle. And five assets. Adonis Campaign, Eve Campaign, and Rex Campaign, which are all HB, and Pad Campaign and Launch Campaign, which are both neutral. And obviously they're all campaigns. So, do any of those sound like cards you'd like to play again? Well, then maybe you want this agenda, if you feel like you can comfortably score a 4-2 agenda. And as an aside, the flavor text is referencing the hedge fund flavor text where it says hedge fund, noun, an ingenious device by which the rich get richer even while every other poor SOB is losing his shirt. That is also from the Anarchs Dictionary volume, Who's Counting? Uh, That is this week's exclusive Mind and Mayhem spoiler, Nostalgiologists, which is just a combination of nostalgia and, I guess, archaeologists. Uh, But 
that's not all there is for this episode. In fact, this is a packed episode. We're going to see whether I can successfully get it done in less than 60 minutes. You will know already by looking at the timestamp. I don't know yet, and I'm about to find out. Let's look at some more upcoming cards. Precognition. Mind and Mayhem, Week 4. Going full on into the Anarch cards. These are all new Anarch cards that were spoiled last week. Uh, First off, let's hit the new identity. The Horde, Defiant Disenfrancistos. Identity, Natural, Gmod, and Cyborg. It is a 50-12 identity, which is a minimum deck size of 50, maximum influence of 12 with zero link. Here's the ability. The first time each turn you make a successful run on HQ or R&D, place one power counter on the horde, then resolve the above effect corresponding to the number of hosted power counters. Now, for the artwork, we see just a computer monitor, sort of an old-school CRT monitor, and there are six lines on it. Uh, They are referencing the whether you have one, two, three, four, five, or six power counters. Uh, but the nice little flavor in there is their people's screen names. So the first one is Ice Ice Baby, but spelled 1-C-E-1-C-E-B-B-Y. And uh, number the, for number five, it's Sinner, but the, a five replaces the S. So if you have one power counter, then you will gain one credit. If you have two you'll draw one card. If you have three, you'll take one net damage and gain click. If you have four, the corp loses one credit. If you have five power counters, trash the next card you access this run. And if you have six, resolve any one of the above abilities and then remove all power counters from the horde and start over again. Our second spoiled card is Termite, a one-memory unit virus for Anarch with a cost of one and just one influence. The first time you access a card from R&D each run, you must trash it at no cost, even if it could not normally be trashed. And then trash Termite if the corp purges virus counters. Our third card is Glee, a console with a cost of three and three influence, gives you one memory unit, and whenever a corp card is trashed during a run on a central server, gain one credit. Sounds like that would pair well with Termite. And a little bit with the Horde identity. Uh, The flavor text is fun. Uh, 2x Tiger says, Ruboom, Ruboom, Ruboom. And Sinner says, Ruboom, Ruboom. And Depro says WTF, and then we see Depro was kicked by 666. Raboom. Raboom is fun. And the fourth card is Pineapple. I'm sorry, Painapple. And we've replaced the A, the first A in Painapple with a number four, numeral four, and the final E with a numeral three. So it's Leet. 
is a unique hardware with a cost of one and three influence. When the corp reses a piece of ice with res cost three or less during a run on a central server, trash Painapple, suffer one brain damage, trash that ice, and jack out. So, of course, this also pairs with Glee. You would also get a credit for doing that. And the flavor text is also fun. Perfect for going bananas. And it looks like a little grenade, basically. There are your four Anarch cards. Uh, one other Anarch card was spoiled on Sunday. I'm recording this on Monday, July 10th, 2023. And uh, we'll be getting into, I guess, HB cards later on this week. So jump into the Discord and join the Booster Pack Spoilers channel if you want to see more. Anonymous tip. Tempo. Tempo is a term that's kind of difficult to define simply. It has the general sense of speed, but I'm going to try to take a crack at explaining it here in this segment. Imagine it this way. The runner and the corp are in a foot race. They're each starting from a different location, but they have the same central destination, seven points. Anything that can speed them up increases their tempo. Let's say they find a downhill portion of the route they're running. Meanwhile, anything that slows them down, which allows the other player to, relatively speaking, pull ahead in the race, decreases their tempo, maybe stumbling over a rock or something. So in Netrunner, one way a player can gain tempo is to do something faster than usual. An example of this would be a burst economy card like Easy Mark or Beanstalk Royalties. These cards allow a player to go from zero credits to three credits in one turn, much faster than simply clicking for credits. In a similar way, Diesel and Anonymous Tip allow you to draw three cards in one turn. It's like the person in a race that finds a shortcut or cuts a corner to make up time. Another way to gain tempo is to be able to do two things at once. A Desperado, for example, allows you to make a run and gain a credit for doing so, which combines two of your basic actions. And in a similar way, shipment from Kaguya lets you place two advancement tokens in one click. So these cards are like running downhill, if you will, being able to race faster. It's also possible to lose tempo. When the runner installs an expensive card, they have lost tempo. The toolbox costs seven credits to install. It provides a lot of benefit later, but that cost has to be recovered through future runs. And it's similar when the corp reses an expensive piece of ice. It may provide a crucial benefit now, but it will slow down their goal of scoring agendas for now. So to continue our analogy, imagine that our racer started running in flip-flops. At some point, they sit down and put on running shoes. These running shoes will definitely help them be faster in the future, but they will have to make up that time they spent sitting down. They've lost some tempo. A tempo is also lost when a runner has to deal with damage. Spending clicks 
to draw more cards into their hand, or when a corp spends clicks to purge virus counters. Clicks in Netrunner are time, and time is tempo. It's like your opponent in the race has placed an obstacle on your route that hampers your progress, that, that rock in your path, and you have to take time to remove it. Another common way to lose tempo is to score or steal an agenda. The court many times will spend an entire turn advancing a card three times, spending three credits and three clicks. Or the runner spends an entire turn running on a remote server and spending the money for that, stealing an agenda. But they had to draw cards before they started, and they have to spend money to get in, and now they're broke. Perhaps our imaginary race requires the participants to pass through certain checkpoints. They need to go down a a dead-end path, for example, and then retrace their steps. So it's a necessary part of the race to hit this checkpoint, but it has slowed down their forward progress. It's kind of similar when it comes to these agendas. You want to steal them, you want to score them, but they will slow down your ability to score or steal the next one. So figuring out how you can gain tempo will make you more efficient and improve your play and enable you to pose challenges to your opponent that they have to deal with. Recognizing when the other player has lost tempo is also a key concept. This is because now you are in a position to make up ground or pull further ahead by capitalizing on their momentary slowdown. Often when the runner loses tempo, the corp gains an extra slice of time that allows them to maybe score an agenda, a scoring window. Whereas often when the corp loses tempo, the runner has a chance to recover their position or apply pressure in a new location. So tempo is a nice concept to understand, gives you a sense of the ebb and flow of the game. But maybe you have a different understanding of tempo or another helpful way of thinking about it or explaining it. If so, let me know. Reach out to me on Discord or Board Game Geek or through email or whatever, and uh, I'll definitely take a look at it and maybe include it in a future episode. Research Station. The timing structures. In some ways, the Netrunner turns are fairly straightforward. You have a set of clicks. You take actions with those clicks. And that's the game. But there are a large number of abilities on cards that interact with that basic structure. And the question of when they interact is what we mean when we talk about timing structures. There are two primary types. But before we get into those, I think it's important first to discuss the concept of a paid ability and a paid ability window. So first of all, what is a paid ability? According to the rulebook, some card abilities have trigger costs that a player must pay before the effect of the ability can be resolved. These abilities are called paid abilities. A card's trigger cost is always listed in its text box before the effect, following the format cost, colon, effect. The most common costs are spending clicks, spending credits, trashing the card, and spending hosted counters. 
Some effects feature a combination of costs. Example. The runner card data sucker has the text hosted virus counter colon rest piece of ice currently being encountered has minus one strength until the end of the encounter. The runner must spend one of the virus counters on data sucker in order to trigger this ability, after which the strength of the chosen ice is lowered by one. That comes from the original core set rules, page 11. That's a paid ability. That's the specific thing we're talking about. Now, having established what a paid ability is, what is a paid ability window? Well, according to the rules reference that came along with the revised core set, quote, a paid ability window is an opportunity during the game for players to use paid abilities. The player who is currently taking their turn gets the first opportunity to act. That player can use as many paid abilities as they wish in the order of their choosing. When that player is finished, the other player gets the opportunity to act. Unquote. And so on, back and forth. Once a player declines to act, the paid ability window closes. In short, Many cards have abilities that can be activated by paying a cost, and there are a number of opportunities or windows in which that cost can be paid. But it isn't true to say that costs can be paid or that cards can be rezzed at any time. Instead, there are specific parts of the game turn where these windows open for a short duration. That's a paid ability window. Okay, let's move on to the concept of the timing structure. As I said, there are two basic types of timing structures, turns, and specifically, runs. And of course, naturally, there are two types of timing structures of turns, the corp and the runner, although they are quite similar. Each of these structures is broken down into separate numbered steps. For example, step 3.2 of the timing structure of a run is to resolve subroutines on a piece of ice being encountered. Now, true rules heads will often know these steps by heart, or at least when I read their comments, it seems that way. Now, it's not crucial that we know the timing structures to that degree, but it is useful to have a good sense of how these are put together in order to improve your play, to give you opportunities that you maybe otherwise wouldn't realize you had, and to recognize when there are things you want to do, but you can't. Now, a final note before we dive in. Null Signal has developed their own set of rules for the game. Uh, but at times, in my opinion, the, the desire to close off loopholes for rules lawyers to exploit can lead to convoluted expressions that make it things less clear than they can be. Null signal has also changed or introduced a number of different terms that weren't present in the Fantasy Flight version of the game. And since the reboot project is based on the Fantasy Flight version of the game, not on Null Signal's version, 
As I've been using the FFG terminology and rules throughout this podcast, I will do that here as well with the timing structure, even though there will be a conflict at some points with the NSG version of that structure. And also note that this segment is not meant to be a comprehensive rules resource. I'm not going to, I'm going to trim and edit in places so that it's more clear for this audio presentation. All right, enough preamble. Now, if you'd like to follow along, I've pulled out the pages to the rules reference that contain these structures, and I've linked to them in the show notes. If you don't have access to the show notes for some reason, here's the link. It is netrunner2.1.com. That's the numeral two and the numeral one. netrunner2.1.com slash timing-turn.pdf or timing-run.pdf, depending on which one of these we're covering first. We're starting with the timing structure of turns. First, the overall structure. For the corp, there are three phases to their turn. One, the draw phase. Two, the action phase. And three, the discard phase. Whereas the runner has just two. One, the action phase. And two, the discard phase. I would have preferred if they'd grouped some of the events from the runner action phase into some kind of preamble phase or intro phase or something, so all the numbering would be the same, but they did not choose to do that, and so neither will I. Let's start with the corp turn. Phase one, the draw phase. 1.1, gain clicks. 1.2, the window for paid abilities, resing non-ice cards, and scoring agendas. So here's the point where if you have a pad campaign or an Adonis campaign that you want to res, here's where you will res it. Or you can score agendas. Uh, Aggressive negotiation, for example, is a card that can be played if an agenda is scored this turn. You could score the agenda here if you advanced it on the previous turn. Or maybe you double-advanced breaking news on the previous turn. You can score it here and give the runner a tag. Now, this is also the window for paid abilities. So if the runner has decoy installed, the paid ability on that card is to trash it to avoid a tag. So all of that can happen right here in this part of the corpse turn, 1.2. After that window closes, we move on to 1.3, where recurring credits refill, such as on the NBN identity. 1.4, turn begins. Which seems strange that turn begins is not the first thing that happens, but it's not the first thing that happens. So here is where your when your turn begins conditional abilities trigger. Like pad campaign, Adonis campaign, you see this is why you want to res them during 1.2, so that you can take your credits off them during 1.4. And then for 1.5, you draw your one card. That's your mandatory draw as the corp. If there are no cards available to draw, you lose. Good day, sir. Moving on to the action phase, part two, phase two of the corp turn 
The action phase starts off right after the mandatory draw with 2.1, another paid ability window. For paid abilities, resing non-ice cards, and scoring agendas. That can all be done after you do your mandatory draw. Then 2.2 is the corp takes actions until there are no clicks remaining. And after each action the corp takes, once again, there is a window for paid abilities, resing non-ice cards, and scoring agendas. So this is all in 2.2. So technically you could say that 2.2.1 is click one, or I guess you'd say 2.2.1.1 is click one, and 2.2.1.2 is the paid ability window that opens after click one. And then 2.2.1 is click two and so on. But what are you? Are you writing war game manuals? We're not gonna do that. You just have to recognize that that's how it's structured. So here's a potential way that these paid ability windows interact with this part of the timing structure. Let's say for click one or 2.2.1, if you prefer, you as the corp advance a card. And then for click two, or 2.2.2, you advance that card again. Now there is a window where you can have paid abilities, res non-ice cards, or score agenda. So you score that card you've been advancing. Let's say it's private security force. And now you have a new ability that you can use on click three of your turn, or 2.2.3 if you prefer, and so you use that ability, click, and you do one meat damage to the runner. However, the runner has Plascrete Carabas installed. And there is a paid ability on that card to spend a hosted power counter to prevent one meat damage. And so here, after the corp has taken their turn, the runner has an opportunity to use paid abilities. And so they use this power counter to prevent that meat damage. Phase three for the corp is the discard phase. 3.1 says you discard one card at a time until you are down to your hand limit. In 3.2, we once again have a window for paid abilities and resing non-ice cards, but not scoring agendas. Scoring agendas can only be done during the draw and action phase for the corp, not here. So when a corp does the classic, like let's say uh, the breaking news score or hostile takeover, you install for click one, advance for click two, advance for click three, and then use that paid ability window after each click to score, that's still happening in the action phase. So if a corp had six cards in hand, that would happen, well, they wouldn't in that situation, but let's just imagine. That would happen after the action phase. So then they discard, and then there's another window for paid abilities, but now not for scoring agendas. Now, a lot of times these different parts of the step, of the phase, of the turn, a lot of them never happen. A lot of these paid ability windows open and nobody does anything in them, but they're there. and so. Sometimes just stepping through, slowly through the turn, 
you make sure you don't miss anything. Uh, part 3.3 of the discard phase after that paidability window closes is the corp loses unspent clicks. That must only be talking about terminal operations, which come along much later in the card pool, where you play them as your, once you play them, your turn ends. So you can't actually end with clicks unspent. And then 3.4, well, your turn actually ends. And so conditional abilities that say when your turn ends trigger. Although I did a search and I only found three corp cards in the full Fantasy Flight Null Signal card pool that have such a conditional ability when your turn ends as the corp. And there are none of them in reboot. So I guess currently that doesn't matter. That is the corp turn. Let's take a look at the runner turn. As you will see, it's very similar. Of course, the runner does not have the mandatory draw part, uh, but the action phase for the runner starts with 1.1, which is gain clicks. That's the same as the draw phase for the corp. Once again, at 1.2, we have a window for paid abilities and resing non-ice cards, but not scoring agendas. The corp cannot score an agenda on the runner's turn. At 1.3, recurring credits refill. And then your turn begins at 1.4. Now, I don't know of any runner cards for which it matters that there is a paid ability window at 1.2 before the recurring credits refill at 1.3. But I guess it's possible and maybe that would matter, but I don't think it matters. And then when 1.4, 1, 1 when your turn begins, that's when conditional abilities trigger. Like Aesop's Pawn Shop, this is when you sell your card to Aesop. Or Parasite, this is when the counter goes on. Or Wildside, this is when you lose a click and draw two cards. And then the action phase continues into 1.5, the equivalent of 2.1 in the corpse side, which is another paid ability window, but of course not scoring agendas. 1.6 for the runner is the same as 2.2 for the corp. The runner takes actions until no clicks remain, and after each action, there is a window for paid abilities and resing non-ice cards. So technically you would have for the runner 1.6.1.1 for the click, 1.6.1.2 for the paid ability window, 1.6.2.1 for click two, and so on. But we've established we're not writing a war game manual. And then we move on to the discard phase for the runner, which is phase two. It's phase three for the court, but it's exactly the same. Discard one at a time until you're down to your hand limit. That's 2.1. 2.2 is a window for paid abilities and resing non-ice cards, but again, not scoring agendas. At 2.3 is when the runner loses any unspent clicks. And at 2.4, the turn ends, and any when your turn ends conditional abilities trigger. There are six of these in the reboot card pool. The first one's coming in the very next pack we cover. Test Run has a when your turn end ends ability. And those are 
the timing structures for the turns. Again, it's fairly straightforward. There are certain opportunities where a paidability window opens. Here are all of them, not counting runs. We'll get to runs in just a minute. But here are all of the occasions outside of a run when there is a window for paid abilities and resing non-ice cards after a player gains clicks for the turn, after the turn begins, but before the first click is used, after each action completes, and then after discarding down to hand size. Again, that's for paid abilities and non-ice cards. The corp can also score agendas in these same windows if it's the corp's turn, and it is the draw or the action phase, but not the discard phase. Still with me? Great. That was the easy part. Let's move on to the timing structure of a run. As a reminder, if you need the link for this, it is netrunner2.1.com slash timing-run.pdf. There are seven steps in this process, and it's really less like a step-by-step process like the timing structure for a turn, and more like a flowchart, or maybe a choose-your-own-adventure book, because we can kind of jump around from one step to the next. Sometimes we jump forward a couple steps, sometimes we jump backwards a couple steps, but here are the seven steps. One, initiation. Two, approach ice. Three, encounter ice. That's a key distinction. Approach ice, encounter ice. Those are two different things. Four, pass ice. Five, approach server. Six, the run ends. And seven, the run ends unsuccessfully. Well, again, if I were in charge here, I would have step six be access the server approach server, access server, or the run is successful. But I'm not, so it isn't. We will go with these seven steps, which again, come straight out of the rules reference from 2018. Let's go through them one bit at a time, starting with initiation, step one. The runner will declare a run on a server, either by using the runner basic action to click make a run, or to play an event card that allows them to run. Those are the main ways. There are other ways, but those are the main ways. Once that run is declared, the runner will gain one credit for each bad publicity the corp has. If there is ice protecting the server, you will move on to step two. If there is not, we will skip ahead to step four. Step two is approach the ice. Now, there are a couple of cards that interact at this point in the timing structure of the run. As you are approaching ice, one is coming up in the next pack, Snitch. Another comes up in the last pack of the Genesis cycle, Midori. That's a corp card. Snitch is a runner card. So for approaching ice, you start with the outermost piece. If for some reason a piece of ice is installed behind you, further out, someplace you've already passed, ignore it. If the piece of ice you're approaching is uninstalled while you're approaching it for some reason, you skip ahead to step four. Otherwise, we have step 2.1, 
paid abilities can be used as you are approaching ice. Step 2.2. If it's not the first piece of ice, here is where the runner can jack out. If so, we jump ahead to step 7. If not, we move ahead to 2.3, which is the opportunity for the corp to res the approached ice and a window for paid abilities and resing non-ice cards. So here is where the corp decides whether they're going to res the card. Here is where you would res corporate troubleshooter so that it's going to, as the best time for that to be resed is right here. Uh, here is where you would res Akitaro Watanabe. You would res him first, and then you would res the ice so that you can get the discount. And then step 2.4 is a check. Is this ice I'm approaching resed? If the answer is no, skip ahead to step four. If yes, we'll move on to step three, which is encounter the ice. At this point, you might call it step 3.0, although they don't, you might call it that. Here is where the when encountered conditional abilities trigger, like femme fatale, inside job, toll booth. And since it's the runner's turn, the runner gets to go first, so it'll be the former femme fatale inside job, and then the latter, toll booth. If this ice is uninstalled while you are encountering it, once again, jump ahead to step four. Step 3.1 is an important one. Here is where the runner can interact with the encountered ice. There is also a window for paid abilities, which is what almost all the icebreakers, basically all the icebreakers, that's what they have is paid abilities all over them. Here is what the actual timing structure chart says. Quote, This is the only point in the run during which the runner can break subroutines. If 3.1 is never reached, then no subroutines on the ice are broken. Unquote. This is a detail that so many people have missed. There's questions about it all over the place. When do I spend money to break to use this icebreaker subroutine? When do I spend money to, to boost it? Now, of course, you can spend money to boost it whenever you want. You typically don't want to, but you can. But you can't use money to, to spend money to interact with the ice, to use the subroutine, to use the ability on Corroder, for example, to break a barrier subroutine, except right here at this point in the timing structure of a run, when you are encountering the ice. A lot of people have missed that detail. And it's, I think, the main reason that null signal has gone with the interface keyword on icebreakers to reinforce the idea, they use the term interface, to reinforce the idea that you are encountering the ice when you use that ability. So even though icebreakers are the main thing you're using here, there's also a window for other paid abilities. The most common one is probably data sucker. Here's where data sucker tokens are spent. But here's an interesting, so you'd use the data sucker tokens before you would spend, spend to uh, break the subroutines or boost the strength. Here's an interesting aside on data suckers, though. If there was a parasite on the toll booth 
that you're interacting with. Okay, that's the situation. We've got parasite on the toll booth. You're, you're encountering toll booth. You have data sucker also installed. The parasite has enough counters on it that toll booth strength is one. Here is the sequence of events. The three credit tax that toll booth gives you triggers first because it happens when you encounter the ice. Essentially, like I said, 3.0. Then in 3.1, the window for paid abilities opens. So that's when you can spend your data sucker tokens to reduce the strength of the ice and potentially destroy it. Well, if you reduce it to zero, it's gone. But the tax happens first. This is the sort of interaction that becomes clear when we slow down and take each piece of the timing structure one at a time. After the runners, after both sides have chosen not to use any more paid abilities, if there are any subroutines not broken, they are resolved at step 3.2. If the run ends at this point, because an end the run subroutine uh, triggered, we go on to step seven. If not, we'll go on to step four. But before we do, I want to point out that chum will trigger here. So if the chum was not broken on the preceding ice, when the encounter ends on the next ice, even if you bypassed it, since you didn't break any of the ice on it, this is where chum would go off right after 3.2. Well, step four, we've referenced a number of times already, and it's a simple one. Pass ice. So here's where any conditional abilities that say when passed trigger. And probably the most notable one that's important to keep an eye out for is one that we don't have in the current card pool, Caprice Nise. Caprice Nise specifically says when you have passed all ice. So uh, what this essentially means is that you don't have a res window here, right? Caprice Nisei triggers now, but you notice there's no paid ability window. So Caprice Nisei has to be already resed when this happens and all of the paid ability windows happen earlier. So if you have no ice, protecting a server that has Caprice Nisei specifically, you cannot res her once the run starts. You have to res her when you are in approaching or encountering a piece of ice, the last piece of ice on the server. I don't know why that's the way they wrote the ability, but that's the way the ability works. I guess I have some idea why they wrote it, probably because I want to give you the opportunity to jack out before you actually have to run into that server. Otherwise, not a lot happens right here. If there is another piece of ice that you have yet to encounter, then you jump back to step two and approach that piece of ice. But if not, then we go on to step five, which is approach the server. Once again, we have a series of specific order and sequence that things happen. 5.1 another window for paid abilities. But notice, not resing non-ice cards. So once the runner moves forward, 
passes the last piece of ice, approaches the server. You can use paid abilities, but you can't res a card. So if you have something in that server that you want to res, you can't do it at this point. 5.2, the runner may jack out. And if they do, we jump ahead to step seven. But if not, we go on to 5.3, where we have another window for paid abilities. And this time you can res non-ice cards. So here is where ash and red herrings, this is where you're going to want to res them. After the runner has chosen to access the server, but before they have actually gotten their hands on any of the cards there. We then move on to 5.4, where the run is considered successful. So if successful effects resolve, and then any when successful conditional abilities trigger. There's a card coming up in the third cycle called Chrysium Grid, and it actually shuts off this part of the step as far as other cards being able to trigger off of it. It basically says, other cards don't know this has happened, which can be very effective because there are a lot of these effects that are when a run is successful, something happens. And then 5.5, you actually access the cards in the server. It's at this point that if you have medium installed, it says that it allows you to access one additional card. So you choose at this point, how many cards do you want to access in R&D? But for each card that you access, there's a four-step process. 5.5.1, you access the card. You see it. This is when any when accessed conditional abilities trigger. At 5.5.2, the runner can trash the card if they can trash the card. At 5.5.3, if it's an agenda, the runner steals the card. Not may steal, does steal is not an option. Unless, of course, they can't pay any cost for it. And then 5.5.4, if any of the cards are not trashed or stolen, we just set them aside and move on to the next card. Loop back around to 5.5.1 and access the second card that you'll be accessing in that server. After all cards have been accessed, we move on to 5.6, where all the ones that were set aside are returned as they were. Notable especially for a run on R&D. If you use the maker's eye or medium and access multiple cards, you put them back in the same order. We then move on to step six, the run ends. At this point, the runner loses any bad publicity credits that the runner did not spend and any conditional abilities that say when the run ends trigger. And as I mentioned before, there have been a number of times if you jack out, if you hit an end the run subroutine that you don't break, we skip ahead to step seven, which is the run ends unsuccessfully. Again, the runner loses any unspent credits uh, from bad publicity. And this time, not only when the run ends, conditional abilities, but also when unsuccessful abilities will trigger. And that is the structure of a run. As always, if you have any corrections to offer, please send them to the usual locations. 
if you have any specific interactions that you would like to have clarified. Well, I'll take a crack at it. Feel free to ask. Drop me a line. Satellite uplink. Trace amount, the second data pack from the Genesis cycle. We're going to look at the corpse side. There are 12 cards for the corp. Eight of them are rebooted. None of them are nerfs. They're all buffs. Let's look at the buffs first. For Haas Bioroid, we have Sherlock 1.0. A Bioroid Sentry with a res cost of 6 and a strength that has gone up from 5 to 6. It's also 2 influence. Has two subroutines. Each of them is trace four. Add one installed program to the top of the runner's stack. The artist here is previously featured Matt Zeilinger. Genteki has two buffed cards, Fetal AI. What used to be a 5-2 agenda is now a 4-2 agenda. Uh, when the runner accesses the card, even in R&D, but not in archives, due to net damage. And, as an additional cost to steal it, the runner has to pay two credits. Sensei, a code gate, has a res cost of zero. Used to be three. A strength of five and one influence. The subroutine says, for the remainder of this run, each other piece of ice encountered gains an end-the-run subroutine. NBN has two buffed cards. Big Brother, an operation that costs zero and is only one influence. You could only play it if the runner is tagged. And instead of giving the runner two tags, you give them four. Uh, the artwork, again, Matt Zeilinger. And I like the flavor text, looking out for your interests since 1984. And Shiloh City Grid. I pronounce it Shiloh, not Chilo or Chilo because Shiloh, it's Chicago and St. Louis, and Chicago is Chi-Town. So Shiloh, it is a region upgrade that costs, instead of three, only one, has a trash cost of six, and has two influence. Whenever a successful trace, there is a successful trace during a run on this server, give the runner a tag. Wayland's Amazon Industrial Zone, another region upgrade, the res cost reduced from 4 to 1, trash cost of 2, just 1 influence. Whenever you install ice protecting this server, you may res it, lowering the cost by 3. And both neutral cards are buffed. Executive Retreat, a 5-3 agenda. When you score it, you get, instead of 1, you get 2 agenda counters that allow you to shuffle, and then you shuffle HQ into R&D, for a click and a counter, you can draw five cards. And Freelancer, an operation that costs zero, but you can play only if the runner is tagged, allows you to trash four resources instead of two. The four unchanged cards are Haas Bioroid's Encryption Protocol, art by Adam S. Doyle. It is an asset with a res cost of zero and a trash cost of two, only one influence and the trash cost of installed cards is increased by one. Jinteki's Replicating Perfection, or White Tree, 
the identity that is 4515, the runner cannot run on remote servers. Ignore this ability until the end of the turn, whenever the runner runs on a central server. And Trick of Light, also for Jinteki, an operation that costs one and is three influence, lets you move two advancement tokens from one card to another. Up to two. And Wayland's Power Grid Overload, an operation that costs one and is one influence, which you can only play if there was a successful run the last turn, is a trace two. You can trash a piece of hardware with an install cost up to the difference between the corpse trace strength and the runner's link strength. Now, there's lots of program destruction in the game. Resources are weak to tags, but this is the first chance that the corp has actually to go directly after a piece of runner hardware, although not real easy. Matrix Analyzer, let's take a look at some of these buffs and have some comments on them. I'm going to look at half of them, starting with Fetal AI, going from a 5-2 to a 4-2 agenda. Now, Fetal AI, I think, was already a strong card. It gives two net damage and it costs two to steal, so it protects itself a little bit. But obviously, five is a lot of advancements to only score two points. Five is a lot of advancements to only score three points. And yet people would still run it just because it self-protected and hurt the runner. So the fact that it's only four seems to make this agenda really strong. Maybe something that's actually worth trying to score. Maybe you uh, use Trick of Light to bank a couple of advancement counters. And then you could even score it in one turn if you install it unadvanced the turn before. Amazon Industrial Zone. I was looking at this card and I found myself thinking, why did I never run this? This is so good. It's only one to res. Lowers the install cost, like the res cost of stuff by three. And all you got to do is res it early. It seems fine if you're running expensive ice. Well, then I saw that its res cost was dropped from four to one. And so at four, well, it's a lot less good. You have to use it twice before you even make your money back on it. But at only one, and for only one influence, it seems like a natural fit for an out-of-faction splash in a deck that wants a lot of big ice. Like I've been playing the Stronger Together deck since What Lies Ahead became 2.1 legal. It is a money-starved deck, and so I will be putting this card right into that deck. As it was a good deck. A big Brother going from two to four tags. You know, a classic play with this card is to install breaking news don't advance it, then wait until the next turn to advance, advance, score it, and then play Big Brother. Now, why does that work? Because the runner has to be tagged before you play Big Brother, but the breaking news tags go away, whereas the Big Brother tags will stay. So now, instead of only two tags staying, it'll be four. That's a lot. Or another option for NBN, restructure data pool. You click and trace to get one tag to land, and then you can dump four more on them. Either way, it seems to me the change from two to four tags makes it more likely for a runner just to be like, you know what, forget it, and go tag me, which is something that NBN wants. NBN wants to know where you are. They're concerned about you. And 
Also, they're concerned about playing cards like psychographics. And then Sherlock 1.0. They went uh, a boost of strength from 5 to 6. It's not really much of a boost, I feel like. I mean, I think the subroutines are kind of weak. They only uninstall the program. They don't destroy it. And they can be clicked through. But I guess the trace 4, that's not a small amount. And I guess... Uh, boosting it from strength 5 to strength 6 does get it out of the ra- easy range of ninja breaking it, because ninja could, is 0 strength, but then you pay to boost it to 5, so now you have to pay to boost it again for only 1, but then if you're playing stronger together, it was already cost 6, but then again, who's playing stronger together? Seems crazy. Special Order, well, formerly Special Order, now known as E3 Feedback Implants, as we take a look at some comments that have been made by listeners. And the first one is about E3 Feedback Implants, which I talked about in the last episode, the criminal hardware with an install cost of 2 and an influence of 2. Whenever you break a subroutine on a piece of ice, you can pay a credit to break a subroutine on that ice. Now, when I first read this card... Many years ago, when the pack was first released, my thought was, this does nothing, because your breakers will only cost one to break anyway. And then, of course, I realized that some cost two to break, and one is less than two. And so that's what I commented on last week. But on Discord, on Discord, Volatar said this, One thought I had worth mentioning about E3 is that, though it can help with expensive two-credit-per-sub breakers, as stated in the podcast, its main use case is actually for bioroids, or other non-breaker means of breaking ice, uh, like some cards later in the game use power counters. However, even at this point in the card pool, it can break Heimdall for a click and two credits, as opposed to three clicks with no breaker, or Corroder's seven credits. So, yes, good call. That is a good use of E3. Thank you, Volatar. And then uh, last week for the Astroscript pilot program, we had a short story about Floyd, the Bioroid detective. Floyd the Bioroid. And Huggin Ronan asked, did Adam kill those people? We then had a short exchange uh, before Huggin Ronan provided the card Independent Thinking, which is a card for Adam, compulsive hacker. He's a Bioroid, one of the many factions that came in Data and Destiny. And sure enough, He's uh, holding a bloody sledgehammer on the card. And the flavor text said, Adam raised the hammer. He was free. And you know, for good measure, the Adam resource Dr. Lovegood shows him making some repairs to Adam, and the flavor says, You look tore up, kid. Have a seat. I'll fire up the arc welder. Is that related? Is he all tore up because he just got in a fight with these people in the alley? I don't know. It is noteworthy, I think, that Data and Destiny... Released October 29th, 2015, whereas the Worlds of Android book was announced just eight days earlier and released in March of 2016, which was just the day before the second pack in the Mumbad cycle was released. So really, Worlds of Android pretty much is finalized around the time that Data and Destiny was finalized. So even more than I realized, it's a nice companion piece to the reboot part of the fantasy flight card pool. 
Thanks to the commenters. Uh, if you would like to comment, well, please reach out to me on Discord or BoardGameGeek or Reddit or StimHack. I have an account on there now. My username is Auberman or my email address, anreboot2.1 at gmail.com. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action, and the website, which still links to the Reboot Project homepage, is netrunner2.1.com. If you want to play online, go to retechie.fun, but if you really want to find games, that's where the Reboot Discord server is for. There's also a Board Game Geek thread for the podcast and group. And if there isn't a Stimhack thread yet, there will be soon. For the AstroScript pilot program, we will return to the worlds of Android, and after talking about Haas Bioroid for the last couple of weeks, we have a couple of brief articles about Jinteki, entitled Personal Evolution and Replicating Perfection. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Personal Evolution When you need the human touch, Jinteki is there. In contrast to the stiff, mechanical, and unfeeling androids produced by Haas Bioroid, Jinteki's clones look and feel human, while representing the best that humanity has to offer. Clones are Jinteki's answer to the labor solutions market, one that will ultimately lead to the betterment of mankind as a whole. Jinteki started as a biotechnology firm in Neo-Tokyo, focused on developing life in all its myriad forms. Its earliest products included replacement and augmentative tissues and organs that could save lives and enhance quality of life for millions of individuals, a mission that has continued at Harmony MedTech branches across the globe today. Jinteki's roots in traditional Japanese management culture and business practices enabled the company to grow and succeed in its first phase of development. At the same time, Jinteki's leadership recognized that the world continues to rapidly change and that evolution is necessary for progress. In its second phase of development, comprising the last 30 years or so, Jinteki has continued to be at the forefront of scientific breakthroughs. Its gene-engineers found ways to leverage nature's own processes at an accelerated pace, developing materials and techniques in a matter of years, not eons. Jinteki outcompeted many rival companies, and was the first to create a fully functional, organic android. As a lab technician at Jinteki's Osaka division, a young Satoshi Hiro had a hand in the breakthrough that enabled clones to be grown in vats in a fraction of the time it took for normal humans to mature. Iterations on this technology have unlocked manifold possibilities beyond mere humans or animals including the Hachi Inu K-8 model employed by the New Angeles Police Department. 
Different markets require specialized approaches, and Genteki encourages its local divisions to customize their product offerings to suit every region and capitalize upon all opportunities. In Biotech Valley, Genteki continues its research and development objectives at the Garden by harvesting the best and brightest minds from the University of the California's campuses. Palana Foods in Mumbad feeds one of the largest countries on earth with its G-modded superfoods and towering agroplexes. Unique environmental conditions in the Heinlein colony domes permit extraordinary advances in radiation and vacuum-resistant life forms, including the impressive turtleback line. Regardless of whether they work on Earth, Luna, or Mars, Genteki employees remain steadfastly loyal to the company's leaders, its principles, and its bottom line. Genteki promotes positive business relationships with any other corpse in need of a more human android. NBN and Genteki continue to work together to produce the next batch of supermodels, celebrities, and associated merchandise. The Miranda Rhapsody-fronted brand Rewater is enhanced with a special blend of patented nutrients to give anyone a little extra glitz and glamour, like the youthful Sensi star. Out of this world, the Wayland Consortium has licensed specialized clone models to service and maintain the beanstalk. And the Henry line is ubiquitous at melange mining operations across the lunar surface. Genteki's rivalry with Haas Bioroid has taken center stage within the NAPD, where detectives Caprice Nise and Floyd 2X3A7C compete to become the agency's next line of defense in reducing crime in the largest city in the solar system. Even after the massive restructuring within the company some years ago, Chairman Hiro continues to revitalize Jinteki. His vision has transformed the company into a megacorporation and a global leader. When Jinteki relocated its headquarters from Neo-Tokyo to New Angeles, it symbolized a commitment to dwell at the epicenter of global innovation so that Genteki could be a driving force in the new age. Soon to enter its third phase of development, Genteki is bringing the world a step closer to perfection with every advance in genomics, medicine, and neuroscience. Replicating Perfection Genteki owns the patent on the technology behind clones, biological androids tailor-made by its gene engineers. Clones seem identical to normal humans in appearance, and their genomes are largely identical as well. These organic androids are more personable and sympathetic than the robotic bioroids built by Haas Bioroid. Early cloning experiments involved work with simple organisms, such as plants. 
the more difficult task of growing animal tissues in vitro was first realized when a sheep was successfully cloned in the waning days of the 20th century. From there, the leap from clones of animals to clones of humans was a straightforward one, scientifically speaking. But significant challenges lay in the ethical conundrums raised by many groups, particularly religious ones, about the use of human tissues. Legislative battles waged over decades determined who owned proprietary DNA sequences and also settled who held the legal rights to organisms created within laboratories regardless of their biological ancestry. A consensus emerged that balanced the right of the individual to own his or her own genome with the ability of corporations to profitably exploit the new technologies. Even with these issues resolved, there remained technical hurdles to turning cloning into big business. Growing an adult organism in an economical time frame was the most significant. The secret seemed to lie in the development of an artificial womb system and tissue stabilization technology. Now, Gentechi's patented processes enable a clone to be grown from fertilization to maturation in mere weeks. Although the bioroid had quickly reached the market, clones quickly claimed a significant portion of the market for themselves. In recent years, clones represent an increasingly important part of the global economy, both through their creation and in the work they perform. Clones are relatively inexpensive to synthesize, which makes them cheaper to lease from Gentechi than it would be to pay workers over the long term. And they are easy to replace when they have incurred damage or outlived their usefulness, with no insurance payouts required. Clone lines are designed to work in a broad range of different environments and can learn to perform any task that the human brain can master, and even some tasks that exceed human capabilities. Through neural conditioning techniques, clones are prepared for their responsibilities from the time they are decanted, but they remain capable of learning new techniques as necessary. Clones are inherently adaptable and intuitive, just like real people, and they can easily establish empathy with real humans if the nature of their work warrants it. Popular clone models, including the Henry and Tenma lines, are immediately recognizable by their stature or style. Clone models from a common line are physically identical specimens, with the only exceptions being due to damage and modifications imparted through use. Often, clone lines also wear characteristic styles of dress that are in keeping with their standard responsibilities, such as a green jumpsuit for Henry's or a tailored suit for Tenma's. As a result, clones are sometimes impossible to tell apart without up-close examination. Under laboratory conditions, 
Clones are quickly identified using a combination of genetic and physiological markers. Some of these are deliberately encrypted for the purposes of recognizing DNA piracy, but other markers are left behind as part of the process of genetic engineering. In normal, day-to-day life, however, clones are identified by a distinctive tattoo on the back of their necks, coupled with a subdermal ID chip. Each code is unique to the individual, so law enforcement organizations use the tags to identify ownership, often to report the recovery or loss of a clone. Although some corporations and individuals can afford to outright purchase their own custom clones, Genteki retains the ownership of many clones and liaises with law enforcement when necessary.